Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 1st, 2018, and this is episode 2,322. We have 23-22. And... Uh, It's a it's a Thursday, so it's a listener call show. I have eight calls lined up for you today. I have a, a call about emergency contingencies when you work in a high-rise office building on a high floor, uh, getting family buy-in on self-raised meat, uh, a great call from my buddy JR on common myths about suicide and debunking those myths, a really important call. Uh, I got the skinny for you on growing garlic. It ain't hard, so let's not make it hard. Uh, dealing with mortality during po poultry breeding, making carbonated cider, uh, building a cabin, and we're going to talk about maybe kits, self-cutting your own timber, etc. And once again, we have kind of a reinforcement here. Millennials lack knowledge, not ability. We had a young guy calling in with some things about what he's learned over the years and uh, uh, kind of come a long way in a pretty short period of time. And I, I do think we need to all remember we were all young and stupid. I'll save my thoughts on it for when we get to that. Anyway, before we uh, do get to your calls, let's go ahead and take a look at this day in history. Um, we are November 1st, of course. We're going back to the year 1800. John Adams moves into the White House. Uh, I'm going to read this full, it's a pretty short article, uh, the full article uh, verbatim off of History Channel, because I think it gives you a, a look at how different... Um, Politicians are treated today than how they lived back in the time of Washington and Jefferson and Adams. On this day in 1800, President John Adams, in the last year of his only term as president, moved into the newly constructed President's House, the original name for what is today known as the White House. Adams had been living in temporary digs at Tuncliffe City Hotel near a half-finished Capitol building since June 1800, when the federal government was moved from Philadelphia to the new capital city of Washington, D.C. In his biography of Adams, uh, historian David McCullough recorded that when Adams first arrived in Washington, he wrote to his wife Abigail at their home in Quincy, Massachusetts, that he was pleased with the new site for the federal government and explored the soon-to-be president's house with satisfaction. Although workmen had rushed to finish plastering and painting the walls before Adams returned to D.C. from a visit to Quincy in October, construction remained unfinished when Adams rolled up in his carriage on November 1st. However, Adams' furniture from their Philadelphia home was in place. A portrait of George Washington was already hanging in one room. The next day, Adams sent a note to Abigail, who would arrive in Washington later that month, saying that he hoped none But the but honest and wise men shall ever rule under this roof. Although Adams was in, uh, initially enthusiastic about the presidential mansion, he and Abigail soon found it to be cold and damp during the winter. Abigail, in a letter to a friend, wrote that the building was only tolerable so long as fires were lit in every room. She also noted that she had to hang their washing in an empty audience room, which is the current East Room. John and Abigail Adams lived in what she called the Great Castle for only five months. Shortly thereafter, Thomas Jefferson defeated Adams in the bid for re-election. Abigail was happy to leave Washington and departed in February 1801 for Quincy. 
As Jefferson was being sworn in on March 4th, 1801, John Adams was already on his way back to Massachusetts, where he and Abigail lived out the rest of their days at their family farm. Um, first, I want to do the last part there. You're a politician, you finish your career, go away and shut up. I mean, there's a long tradition that that's what, especially once you serve as president of the United States. Go away, shut up. Do some speeches for some money or whatever. But in the write your memoirs. But go away and shut up. You had your turn. Uh, everybody did that until well, very, very, very recently. And I'll say even Bill Clinton went away and shut up. The only time he really came out was a stump for his wife. And I don't think you can fault a guy for that. Even though, oh my God. Uh, the greatest gift Donald Trump has given us is not here in that woman's mouth on a daily basis, I'll tell you what. Um, <laughs> uh, the other thing in this, though, is Abigail Adams had to use a guest room to hang her laundry in the White House, which is called the President's House. When do you think, who do you think was the last First Lady to even when you had machines and stuff like that, to la the last first lady that while she was first lady living in the White House did her own dang laundry. Really. I, I'd, I'd actually, that'd be an interesting little sign. I'd like to know that. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get to your calls. Let me remind you real quick, if you want to make a call like this, you call the Think Line. That number is 866-65-THINK, 866 65-T-H-I-N-K. Call that number. You leave me a message. It'll come through me to the magic of the interwebs and an email attachment. Uh, make sure you call from a quiet area. Make your point or ask your question immediately and up front. Then give me details. Your call will go better and you'll be more likely to get on the air. Let's go ahead and take our first call. This is a question about emergency contingencies in a high-rise office. Hey, Jack. It's Ben in Arizona. I recently got... A new job in a uh, sky rise. Uh, I'm on the 10th floor of an office building. Um, I'm trying to think of like EDC related stuff for this setup specifically. There's only two exits. There's very wide windows, but I'm at the top and there's nowhere else to go but down. So, you know, I was thinking of maybe some sort of concealable, you know, I don't know, repelling gear. Uh, that could be kind of interesting. I'm not really sure what that would entail or even if anything like that's around. You know, some sort of escape evasion equipment is, you know, useful. Um, you know, maybe make sure that my desk is near the exit. But outside of that, I'm really not sure of what else to do. Of course, you know, deal with violence and all that stuff, however you have to deal with it. But just on the straight-up escape part, like if there's a fire or anything like that where I have to get out of the building, what could I do to not use, you know, the normal escape routes would something like some sort of repelling gear work anyways uh thank you for your time uh long time listener and i uh, look forward to your response thank you jack Let, let's start out with the good news here for you that maybe just calms this whole concept down a little bit in a modern office building short of something like a 9-11 style attack the odds that you're going to have something like an office fire that prevents evacuation and quickly spreads throughout the building is almost zero. First of all, look around you, and other than maybe some desks, tell me what burns real good in your office. Tell me what you could walk up to with a, a, a Bic lighter and set on fire and it would actually start burning. 
And don't try it because all modern office buildings are equipped with fire suppression systems uh, that are mandated by law. And while I'm not big on mandating things with law, uh, I got to tell you that, uh, that that's probably one of those ones that, uh, that that is useful, if not even if not necessary. And I think that today you don't even need it mandated by law because with the the, the other side of law, which is lawsuits. I, I can't see that you're not going to be in a situation where, where anybody investing that much money uh, to build something like an office building isn't going to put fire suppression in it anyway. Uh, in fact, I would say today, if it wasn't for government, it would probably be insurance companies that would be mandating it anyway. So there is private market solutions to that. So your building's not going to catch on fire and burn down. I, I can almost guarantee you that. About the only risk you have uh, in your situation would be something like a bomb going off or something like that, uh, or an active shooter. So we should think more in the framework of dealing with those scenarios than a fire. All right. Um, if you really want a way to get down from a building like that, what you need is a big hammer to knock out a window. Uh, you need a good rappelling rope of sufficient length to reach the ground from where you are. To have scouted out and know a good anchor point for that rope to be tied to, you need to know how to tie a Swiss seat, you need a carabiner, and you need to know how to rappel. I, I, I don't know that I can say that, that, that you know setting up to do that is is really a great idea. Uh, I worked in you know not tenth floor but you know you know fifth floor of an office building was where my offices were. I really didn't worry that much about rappelling down the side of the building. Um, the odds are uh, that in all but the most extreme situations, you'd risk more hurting yourself by cutting yourself with shards of glass uh, or having the rope end up cut on shards of glass than you would ever be really making the right decision to do this. I, I'm not going to say it, it cannot happen. I'm not going to say you cannot have a situation where having that ability might be a good idea. But in general, office buildings don't just burn down. Um, the odds of your office burning down is lower than the odds of spontaneous combustion occurring underneath your bed at night and burning you to death in your sleep. I know you've never heard of that happening, and you might have heard of an office or two catching on fire. But I'm talking about an office building burning down uh, in a situation other than somebody bombed the damn thing And, and so I think we need to be thinking more about a plan of how you get out. Uh, your basic preparedness items. And the beauty of an office is you don't need to rely just on EDC. You can have EDH. What is EDH? Everyday have. You're at your office. You have a desk. You have drawers. If you put something in that drawer, you don't have to carry it for it to always be where you are at work. All right? So... You know, your basic preparedness items, some extra food and stuff like that is, is really a good idea. If you, if you happen to get stuck there or something like that. Um, I do believe that the bigger threat in an office other than somebody trying to, you know, much bigger than the possibility of somebody parking a rider truck next to it and setting it off McVeigh style uh, or somebody flying a plane into it is an active shooter. And I would be more concerned with having a plan for an active shooter situation. If you have an enlightened employer or just one ignorant enough to the law to not do anything to prevent it, then obviously concealed carry is the way to go. I believe that really people need to, to understand 
and, and bolt into their brains for an active shooter situation the concept of run, hide, fight, with an exception. If you are armed and there's a guy shooting people, you move and shoot and take him out. Other than that, you don't. And I do think like if there's an active shooter on the 10th floor and you're on the 9th, you don't go up there to engage that shooter unless you have a responsibility to do so, your security or something like that. Um, I'm not going to say you shouldn't because you know what? I, I say that out of common sense, but I can't say that I wouldn't. I can't say that if I thought I could save lives, I wouldn't. You've got to be cognizant in that situation, though, that you may very much appear to responding law enforcement or responding building security as a threat. So I think it's situationally dependent uh, on how that would be. Because um, for all they know, you're just a, even if they know you're not the guy, you're just another shooter. So you, you really got to think in that situation. Concealed carry in that situation is designed for the immediate elimination of the threat because the opportunity presents itself. And then you want to very quickly assess the situation, make sure there isn't a second shooter, and you, you, know, you want to holster, and you want to start saying things like, somebody call 911, things like that, so that somebody in that building that doesn't know who you are knows you're the good guy. Bad guys don't say, somebody call 911. Bad guys don't put their guns away and start trying to help people get out of the building, etc. Okay? So that's, that, that's more of the mindset that I would be coming from. Um, you absolutely can set up a kit to be able to repel 10 floors. That's pretty far. Uh, it's a lot of rope. You know, you're looking at somewhere between 100 and 120 feet, and you know the right way to repel is a doubled rope. So you're looking at somewhere between 200 and 220 foot of, of, of you know quality repelling rope. And again, if you don't know how to repel, then you're probably going to be a dirt dart, and that doesn't really help at all. So um, again, I would think more about planning your route. You said there's only two ways in and out. Well, what are those ways? How long do they take? Um, there's probably two different stairwells. Stairwells are actually, in general, a fairly secure location from you know things like tornadic storms and stuff like that. They're, they're, they're well reinforced. But I, I, I'm going to kind of metaphorically and maybe a little bit ironically say we need to talk you off the ledge a little bit here. Um, you, you, again, you, you, you just really don't have a risk of that place catching on fire and going, uh, what was the movie? Inferno, going Inferno on you. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Casey from Connecticut, a.k.a. the most freest state in the United States of America. Just kidding. Uh, question. Uh, my wife and I are planning on buying a property next year, and we want to have animals that we raise to slaughter and eat. Um, my kids aren't really, well, my wife too. Um, none of them are really, uh, liking the idea of raising our own meat. Um, my five-year-old the other day said, that's mean when we were talking about it. Um, and I know how he feels because when I was younger, my parents raised livestock and I had the same kind of, uh, feelings about it. I'm just wondering what your suggestion about convincing him that it's the best thing for him would be. Um, you know, your answer might be to just say, no, nope, you're going to eat it and that's it. Um, but I want him to be okay with it mentally uh, rather than just forcing him to eat it. Um, thanks. Love the show. 
Okay, well, you got two totally different situations. I know you think you have one situation on your hand, but you don't. You have two. You have a wife situation and a child situation. Well, let's talk about the child situation first, because this is the one you have to be really careful with. I want to tell you a quick story here. So when I was a kid, and I'm going back like first, second, third grade, somewhere in there. So I was, you know, seven, eight years old, something like that. My sister's three years younger than me. There were these machines that uh, they were like all the grocery stores and stuff, and they were just stupid as hell. And it was like a quarter or 50 cents, and you put it in this machine, there was a whole bunch of those plastic, like plastic Easter egg type eggs in it. And in the center of that thing, there was a really pathetically looking chicken, a fake, you know, stuffed animal type chicken. And when you put that quarter or whatever in there and pushed it, and it went, bah, 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 just a horrible thing. And it spun around in circles, and then an egg would fall out the bottom of the thing, and there'd be a little toy or something in there like that. So my sister was completely obsessed with this. So she would have been about three years old uh, at, at this time, I'm guessing. And uh, she always wanted the chicken. Well, you know, and even back then, a quarter wasn't a lot of money. Um, So it was easier when she was throwing a fit, they would just throw a quarter in there and get her the damn chicken egg than it was to, to uh, try to explain to a two- or three-year-old kid, no, you can't have a, a toy egg from the chicken today. So it started to get to the point where once in a while she wanted the chicken at the house. Well, we're not going to the grocery store to get a chicken egg, right? So one day she's whining and crying she wants the chicken. Thinking it was funny, my father picks her up opens up the oven, points at chicken cooking in the oven. He said, you want a chicken? Honey, there's the chicken. It clicked in her head for the first time. You know, she had enough rudimentary language skills to know that we ate chicken and the chicken was there. The, the chicken it was the chicken. It was a bird. Uh, she didn't eat chicken for about a year. Don't push it on the kid. My advice with the kid is keep the kid away from slaughter and even butchering until the kid wants to be part of it. And when it's time to eat chicken, you're just eating chicken. He doesn't need to know where that chicken came from. He just doesn't need to know. It's at five, dinner's on the table. Uh, memories are short. Uh, don't make a big deal about slaughter day. Uh, it might be a good day for a boy to go to Camp Grandma's until he's, he feels differently about the situation. He goes, the chickens are there, you come back, the chickens are gone. And, it's, and you have some other chickens, so they're not, there's still some chickens. That type of thing. Uh, regardless of what, you know, and, and or other animals. Your wife I'd have a more rational conversation with. Uh, it would go in the same conversation I have with my wife. Honey, look, the animals that we take care of live the best lives that animals can live under the circumstances. When we, when we uh, slaughter them, we do, we do it quick clean, effectively, uh, and with humility. Uh, that animal has a great life, and they don't even have one bad day. They have a couple bad seconds. And if we do it right, they don't even know they have that. They're just here one minute and gone the next. Since you eat meat, you need to know that the, the meat we eat comes from conditions that are not like that. Some of the places that, that do factory meat, I, I honestly believe it's true to say that that animal's best day is its last day. That moment that is the worst moment for our animals is the best moment for them. We provide a much better environment and a much higher quality product for our table. I'm not going to force you to eat it, um, but I ask you to consider trying it at some point. Then I'll also say this. The way to get 
a reluctant spouse to consume a, a, an animal that was um, slaughtered in their own backyard is if you slaughter today, don't cook tomorrow. Put that shit in the freezer. And when you take it out a month later, it's just another piece of meat. And, and my wife has slowly come around to all of this, including game, because she used to not eat game. And it was some meatballs that got her going, the meatballs I made with the, today's item of the day. I'll talk about it when I get there, uh, and, and some uh, feral hog and venison. And that was, and it's on now, man. She tore up the over-the-rooster, over-the-fence rooster and venison stew this week. Uh, she really liked that. And, you know, not so long ago she wouldn't even try deer meat. Um, so it, it takes time. And you may get an answer like this, because I have gotten this answer from Dorothy. I know, but it's just in my head. I don't want to do it. you got to accept that. You, you wouldn't want someone forcing you to eat something that you didn't want to eat. Um, again, though, if, the, if you can get buy-in from the wife, then you just don't tell the kid. We're having chicken tonight. We're having you know steak tonight. We're having pork chops tonight. They don't need to, they don't need to know it anymore. Um, as they get older... You can have a more in-depth conversation with, you know, that's mean. Well, you know, where do you think your hamburger comes from? But I wouldn't do it. If they're resistant to it, I wouldn't do it at five. Because next thing you know, you're going to have a little vegan on your hand, and that's going to be a nightmare. You're not going to want to have to deal with that. Um, different people have different tolerances for different things. Um, I you know, a long time ago, had a real problem slaughtering an animal. I had no problem killing an animal. I had a problem, and there's a difference. I grew up a hunter. Um, I, I, I was hunting with my BB gun and cooking doves and stuff over fires in the woods in Florida long before my parents knew that that's what was happening. Um, really, yeah. Uh, so I never had a problem killing an animal when I felt that I was hunting the animal. I had a real problem killing animals, at least in my head, if not mechanically. You know, I could do it, but it was like thinking about it, I really didn't want to. Um, because that animal trusted me and had no means of defense. Like, if, I, if you've ever gone dove hunting, shooting a dove isn't as easy as you'd think. You know, they, they make fools out of you. A dove can do 60 miles an hour, and if you've got a 20 mile an hour tailwind, you got something moving at 80 miles an hour about the size of your fist you're trying to knock out of the air with a shotgun. It could be complicated, right? Um, squirrels are amazingly cunning in their ability to flatten out and move around a tree, etc. So I always felt okay with that. So you gotta, you got to kind of temper it. Be, you know, do some temperance with this. And, again, logical conversation with the wife. Just, just don't even bring it up with the kid again. When you get the animals, you know, you, you might be surprised. It might turn around pretty quick. My grandson, Braylon, has never been around when I've slaughtered animals. He's seen me do some butchering. And the turkeys that we raised the last two years hated him. And these are big birds, and they would go after him. And once he snapped to the fact that they're for eating, he'd tell them, we're going to eat you, and he had no problem eating it. So, you know, maybe if the animals aren't cute, furry, cuddly little things, like I wouldn't start with rabbits, you know, and I wouldn't start with goats. They, I mean, goats are miserable creatures. I hate goats anyway. But there's few things in the world cuter than a baby goat. A baby goat is freaking cute, you know? So, like, if you do chickens and you do a run of meat chickens, 
honest to God, by the time they're 12 weeks old, they're like, why didn't you kill me two or three weeks ago, dude? Please, I don't want to be here anymore. And, and that may make it a bit easier as well. So those are some of my thoughts. Anybody's been through this, tell your story. Let us know how you did it. Comments in the, in, on the blog would be great. Or call in your own call about how you dealt with the situation. I believe in uh, crowdsourcing and gaining not just questions from the audience, but information. On that note, my buddy JR, who's uh, just recently retired from the Air Force after 20-something, I don't think it was 20, I think it was 20-something years of service, um, worked with a lot of people in the world of suicide prevention as part of his service and uh, wanted to do some follow-up on some stuff I talked about recently with suicide. And he wanted to, uh, to provide some, some myths and some counter-arguments to those myths. And he did a great job on this call. So, JR, take it away. Hey, Jack. It's JR from Oklahoma. Hey, in regards to your topic of suicide on Monday, um, I wanted to share some of the myths that are common surrounding this subject that is really, really hard to talk about. Um, I taught this subject for Air Force basic training recruits during my four-plus years as a drill instructor. I probably have somewhere upwards of 25 podium hours um, with classrooms of up to 100 students. So I learned a lot from them, um, as any teacher should, and going through that curriculum and over and over gave me some very interesting insights into it. Um, it's the third leasing cause of deaths for folks that are ages 15 to 24, and in our veteran community, um, we lose an average of 22 people a day to the epidemic. So the first myth that's out there is suicide usually happens without any warning signs, and that's absolutely not true. Eight out of ten people who attempt suicide um, give warning signs or clues, even if they're subtle. So the takeaway from that is that we become aware of the signs. Uh, myth number two is there's usually a note left behind. Less than 25% of suicide victims ever leave a note, um, and that most time that leaves the average six direct survivors from that point, a lot of unanswered questions, but usually there's not a note left behind. Someone who talks about suicide is just trying to get attention, and that the exact opposite of that is true. More than 70% of people who kill themselves have previously threatened to do so or made an attempt. So we always need to take those um, those verbalizations or whatever comes forth, take them seriously. Uh, the fourth myth, people who are suicidal are intent on dying and feel that there's no turning back. You kind of covered this in the show. Uh, it's quite the opposite. Most people who are suicidal usually have mixed and opposite emotions about it. Parts of them do want to die, but the other part just wants the pain to stop. If they're given another path, they're usually likely to take that. You know, my life experiences with this um, is that most folks get to this position, they just lost all hope and their ability to see any other relief to the pain. They just can't see it. So as friends and loved ones of these folks, we need to find a way to give them hope for the future. Um, people who attempt suicide once are unlikely to try again. That's the fifth myth. About 80% of people who die from suicide have made at least one other attempt already. So if you know someone that has attempted in the past, they're if you see them getting into uh, depression and lower points, um, it's very likely they'll make another attempt. The sixth myth is that someone who survives a suicide attempt is obviously not serious about it. Any suicide attempt that 
we see should be treated as though the person intended to die and not simply dismissed as some attention-getting action. And the last one, which I always I think is so important, is if you mention suicide to someone as a myth um, who seems depressed, you are just planting the idea in their mind. And that's totally not true. Discussing suicide openly can actually help a depressed person not hurt themselves, and you may be able to help them obtain the help that they need even better. Um, always be direct. It's, it's tough, right? We don't talk about this very often, but if you're going to ask someone, ask them directly, hey, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Or even more direct, have you had thoughts of committing suicide? Don't sugarcoat it. Don't beat around the bush. Bring that to the forefront. You're not planting a seed. You're going to help them by giving them an avenue to discuss it. Um, you're right, Jack. What we do matters. So if anyone in the audience is thinking about suicide or you're at such a low point that you have thoughts like this, um, thoughts like, I just wish I wouldn't wake up in the morning. Please reach out. If no one around you is friend enough to trust, start with the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Someone there can give you that spark of hope that you're looking for. Okay, thanks, Jack, and thanks, TSB community. Good stuff, and I, I have just a couple things to add to this. Number one... Um, when JR says you have to take every, you know, threat or mention of anything that even approaches a suicide seriously, I can tell you that that's true. And fortunately, this 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 friend of mine has not taken his own life, and I, but I still to this day l just live with some little bit of dread in the back of my head, knowing that someday I'm going to get a call uh, that that he's he's done it. Um, he's about my age and hasn't yet, so maybe it won't happen. But I mean. If 10 years ago I'd have got that call, I'd been very sad, but I would not have been surprised. But I'm going to take you back to when the two of us were 20 years old and we were in the military together. And uh, one day he picked, he, he got picked for guard duty. He really didn't want to do it. And I, he had been having a bad day. And uh, I think it was like he wasn't even supposed to be on duty. It was like one of those things, oh, you're on duty, like, like, they, like somebody got sick or something, and he was like, The next, you know, the next guy in the barrel type of thing, and uh, he made a comment like something like, "I should just kill myself," and it was just a ridiculous comment. Like it didn't, it didn't in any way mean anything at the time he met, made the statement. But the the sergeant of the guard that heard him make it thought, "I can't send a soldier out there with a freaking weapon with ammo in it," uh, you know. The, the, an hour after he said he was going to kill himself. So somebody else got called up to that position, and Brad got sent for psych eval. The military took it seriously enough. He was flown from Panama back to Sam Houston uh, Army Hospital and uh, went through two weeks of psychological evaluation, group therapy, etc. Uh, they put him on freaking Prozac for a while, And sent him back to Panama and said, yeah, he's okay for duty. He thought the whole thing was a joke. He wasn't amused by it at all. But once he realized he had no choice, he kind of like, well, I'll go hang out in San Antonio for two weeks and talk to pretty nurses and whatnot. And when they send me to group, I'll take over and be group leader. And I mean, that's how he, and when he came back, we all thought it was stupid. 
Let me tell you, this guy's been close to killing himself multiple times since that happened. He went through two really nasty, horrible divorces. And I think the fact that really the second one was of his own making and his own design and destruction um, made that one worse. <sighs> But... The fact that he was the person with that inside of him, that little aside all the way back all those years ago, that was a, that was an indicator. I mean, I might say it, and it might be a complete, I should just kill myself. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, nah, I didn't mean it. But when, when I really think about it, I've told other people to kill themselves, but I've never said that I would kill myself. So even the thing that seems like an off-the-shoulder joke should be taken seriously. The next thing is, because I know I'm going to hear it from somebody, and there's sometimes people say stuff that just doesn't need to be said or try to counter-argue arguments that don't need to be made. JR dropped the 22 suicides by veterans a day on average. There's been some pushback on that, that it ain't really true. And then, well, it is true, but it's not really the way you think. And the counter-argument is that a lot of people that have committed suicide, that are looked at as veteran suicides, uh, did so... Uh, many years after their service, and in some instances, if you blocked off a group, let's say like 40 to 50-year-old men, um, you count those veterans as veteran suicides, but if you compare them uh, as a uh, per capita against the totality, they're not that much different. It's not, you know, the, the, about the same percentage of veterans 40 to 50 commit suicide as anybody does 40 to 50. And uh, and if they've been separated for 10 or 15 years, you really can't say that their service is connected in any way to their suicide. In a word, bullshit. I served in the Army for three years. I have been alive for more years after my service than I was before my service at this point. Okay? That's a while. I don't sit around and think about it every day. It's not like an analog. Remember Al Bundy with his football uh, days in high school, and like it's it's my everything. But I will always be a soldier. And if you were a soldier and we meet and we don't ever bring it up, you'll probably know that I was a soldier, and and I'll probably know that you were a soldier. In fact, if you were a marine, I'll probably know that you were a marine versus a soldier. I'll know. I'll know by your mannerisms. I'll know by the way you talk. I'll know by the way you move. I'll know what, by your mannerisms. I'll probably be able to identify if you were in the Air Force. In the Navy, I'll be able to identify you because you'll have a hickey from your boyfriend. Sorry, squids, I had to do it. Just kidding. But if you were in the military, I may not always get the branch right, but I'll know. And you'll know when you're talking to somebody that was as well. Because you will never not be. You will never not be a soldier, sailor, airman, marine, or coast guard. You will never not be that. And I believe law enforcement officers as well. You will probably never not be that. And you cannot understand it if you weren't part of it. And to say that some person who committed suicide 15 years after they left, left service, th there would be no con connection to their service is preposterous. There are things that come back to you years later that you regret 
that at the time you didn't regret, and when you got out, you didn't regret. And if you are going through other problems in your life, if you were a veteran for a, or if you were an active service for a significant period of time, I mean, three years is enough, but I can only imagine only 10 or 15. And you became used to that camaraderie and that brotherhood and having that available to you. And then you hit some super hard trial and that's not there. The argument that those two things are disconnected, I believe, is, well, to use a word people don't like to hear, and I don't care, retarded. It's a retarded argument. Um, and, and, and the concept that, well, you know, this person that committed suicide, they weren't even deployed. They were a, they, they were a video game player. They were a drone, uh, a drone pilot. Yeah, those guys are killing themselves left and right, guys, because they realize it wasn't a video game. There, there, there's, you don't understand, so don't, don't even try. Just accept that the person that goes through military service, even if they don't deploy into a combat zone, uh, even if they never deploy uh, into a foreign theater, it is life-altering, and it is some of the best parts of who they are, but there will always be some level of feeling of loss after separation from it, even if they don't want to do it again. And I just kind of wanted to point that out. Uh, next, uh, we've got a question here on growing garlic. Jack, Lane Douglas here, a lifetime member. question today is about garlic, and you can answer this or kick it to the expert council if you think it's more appropriate. Uh, this is my first year to plant garlic, and I've read all I can find on the Internet and in books, a few conflicting uh, bits of information. So if someone could give me their two cents worth from the expert council or from yourself, I would appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. You know, one of my favorite uh, sayings of all times comes from kind of the grandfather. I get at this point he might be the great-grandfather of the modern home-brewing movement, Charlie Papazian. Relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. And he said that frequently throughout his first book on homebrewing. And he did that because there's all these little fiddly-farty things that you have to do to get your brewing just right. But in the end, it's not that hard, and if you just do it, even if you don't do it perfect, you'll probably end up with an okay beer. So relax, don't worry, have a home brew. I'm telling you all this complicated stuff, but in the end, it's making beer. Every housewife in America made beer for her husband you know, uh, back in colonial times, and if they could do it back then, you can do it today in a world of microwave ovens and things like that. When it comes to planting garlic, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew, and plant your garlic. Garlic does like really good soil. So a good uh, tilling in of compost or a good, you know, like a lasagna-style mulch of compost and stuff like that is not a bad idea. Uh, it also does like fertility. So if you're doing compost and stuff like that, you've got a lot of it, but garlic grows best in the cold parts of the year, uh, and it, it does well throughout the rest of the year, too, and I'll get to when to plant it in just a second. But um, a good organic fertilizer, something like Dr. Earth, 
444 that I recommend. You can find it at tspaz.com. Uh, my write-up on it would be a good uh, addition uh, for that period of time when the soil is a little bit cold and you don't have a lot of microbiological activity going on. And because of that, some of those nutrients aren't as available as they would otherwise be. So good, friable, nutrient-dense soil. Plant your garlic now. Plant it any time between September and before it freezes. If you're in a northern climate where you get really hard freeze for the year, uh, throw down about four to six inches of mulch on top of it after you grow it, and then don't do anything. And the end of next season, you know, depending on where you are, somewhere around the end of August, middle of September, your garlic will be ready for harvest. You pull it out of the ground, you trim the green part out, get some sort of a large screen or something. We had a big old rusty gate uh, that we would use and uh, put it up on some cinder blocks and we just lay the garlic out on it and let it cure and dry, store it in, you know, old onion garlic style bags. Uh, or you can braid it if you want to, if you don't want to uh, actually uh, take the green off and, and keep it in a cool, dry space. And set aside some portion of that to plant for the next season. Pull the cloves apart, plant each clove individually wherever you want another garlic. That's it. There is nothing more to it. It is probably one of the easiest plants to grow on the planet. It is hardly affected by pests at all. There's some, but it's so minimal that it's not worth worrying about. If it, if it has good, friable, nutrient-dense soil, and it doesn't get too dry, um, it, it will grow, and it will do well for you. So relax, don't worry, have a homebrew, plant your garlic. There are things to mull over and do some research on, and, and get the technique down right, and do it right. And there are things that you just do. I mean, I was eight years old doing this for my grandfather when we took vacations up to Pennsylvania. Go pull the garlic. Oh, okay. I mean, if I can do it at eight, you can do it now. You won't have a problem. Relax. Don't worry. Plant your garlic. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Dan in Ohio. I need your thoughts on Caternic's quail mortality during the brooder phase. Here are the details. After listening to your show for several years, we took the plunge into suburban quail. Nine days ago, we purchased 28 day-old chicks from a reputable local quail farm. They were fine for a few days, but then one by one they began to die. We lost six birds over a several-day period from about day three through about day six. Uh, hopefully this has slowed down, but I would like to get to the bottom of the issue. The birds appeared healthy and happy until they just died. Uh, we're now we are feeding them New Country Organics Turkey Starter, which we grind in a coffee grinder to get it fine enough. High-quality, non-GMO, non-soy feed, about 25% protein, and they seem to love it. There's no sign of external damage to the birds, including in the indication that they're picking on each other. Two days ago, I began a once-daily supplement with a product called HydroHan, which is a three-in-one combination probiotic electrolyte and acidifier. And I haven't lost a bird since we started this program, but I'm not sure if it's coincidence and I'm not sure if it has solved the underlying problem. They're kept in a brooder box, sterile right, 
box in my basement with aspen chips for bedding and a heat lamp on an electronic thermostat. Uh, we're still seeing two specific problems that we're concerned about and would not be surprised to lose more birds. The first problem is that a few of the birds are dramatically smaller at this stage than other birds, and a few of and uh, they just don't seem to be growing. Some, a few of them. The second problem is occasional runny poop, which leads me to wonder whether these birds may have worms or some other disease. On that topic, the quail farm told me that the inspector had just performed his periodic visit with no indication of problems. At this point, we don't know whether we have healthy birds or not. I've seen suggestions on the Internet that you should take any birds with runny poop to the vet, but the vet bill would undoubtedly dwarf the cost of replacing all the birds. I've also seen suggestions that we should worm the birds with a product called Wazine, but I'm not sure that this is necessary at this point and may be overkill. Uh, I'm also wondering, Jack, whether I sh would have been better off to order eggs and incubate my own in order to avoid any potential disease. I would appreciate your thoughts on all of this. Thanks, Dan from Ohio. Bye-bye. Well, first of all, kudos to you for making the decision you made. This is, this is my rule when it comes to losing animals. If you're losing animals, do something different. Do something different, because you know, obviously whatever you're doing isn't good enough. So the fact that you, you went to this additional product and it seems to have stopped, it may or may not be the solution. We don't really know that. Um, there's a few things that could be going on here. The batch of quail you got could have just had something wrong with them. Um, the last big batch of ducks we did, we had huge losses. I think I brought in like 75 birds and I lost like 20, 25 of them. And we had never had losses before. We've never had losses before uh, of any significant amount. You'd have one that would get itself stuck in the water or something like that, or you know, one that came all crippled during shipment that just couldn't recover. Uh, but you would not have that kind of a, a high-level loss. We're still not sure what caused that. Here's some things that I've learned with ducks. I mean, I've not had any kind of problems with quail. But the only problem I've had with quail... Um, is right when they start laying, sometimes you'll get some prolapse where they basically their butthole turns inside out and they need to be put down uh, when they're laying. And the simple solution with that is if they have grit, and you want to make sure you're giving them some grit, some oyster shell and stuff like that, um, it goes and they have that extra calcium, it goes away. It, 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 you never have it again. Um, the other thing, and I've seen it in ducks, I've not seen it in quail, and it, 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 it could definitely be an issue, especially during the growth phase uh, of the birds, is a nutrient deficiency specifically in things like niacin and other B vitamins. And I have made it standard practice now that if I'm brooding birds, if, 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 they're, if a mother hatches them and they're being free-ranged, I don't worry. Because they're going to get all kinds of little bugs and stuff like that. But when they're being brooded, I use nutritional yeast in the food. And when I fill the feeder, I just sprinkle some on the top as though it was like a topping. Like a, like it was Parmesan cheese and you really liked it, you know. And then kind of mix it in their food and, and let them eat it. And that has solved the, the, the weird problem that I've had with the ducks sometimes where you'll get a duck and all of a sudden, like, he just seems like he gets paralyzed on one side. Like, 
His one side just won't go. And once they start that, they almost never seem to come back. And when I went to providing nutritional yeast, that just went away and never happened again. So I decided that if it works for ducks, and ducks may be a little bit more likely to have that type of a problem than other poultry, I'm just going to use it with all poultry because it's cheap. If you're going to supplement yeast for nutrition with your animals, you want to make sure you use nutritional yeast, not brewer's yeast. What is the difference? Nutritional yeast will be, usually be in flakes instead of the grinds, but it will be a dead yeast product. Um, what, will, what they will do is they will basically grow out the yeast into like a slurry, and then they will dry it out and heat it to the point where the yeast dies. 150, 160 degrees. Dead. And then they'll you know, process it so that, it, that, that sheet then becomes flakes. They'll bag it up and they'll send it to you. You can get it on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes of the brand that I use, but it really don't matter. If you have a, a Whole Foods or something like that near you that sells it, you can go buy the same stuff you use for people and add that to your feed. And I think that's probably one of the best things I've learned since we started messing with poultry was that supplementation. And that may be what it is. But it, my concern is... That that's not it is you didn't say that like well they would start to get weak they're there one minute and they're dead the next um, you said there's no injuries that's something you always got to check for it is always possible that you have one animal that goes rogue and starts killing other animals uh, I've seen it with turkeys usually not when they're in a brooder stage but even when they're still pretty small I've seen dominance issues rear up and I've seen birds kill each other. Um, and, and, and in some cases it's some pretty gruesome stuff but then there's always some kind of a marking another thing to do is look at your brooder and its size and how your animals are behaving in your light if you're always finding the dead ones laying up against the wall what could be happening is you have that whole group of birds and every one of them is pretty small but their accumulative body weight is heavy And if they're, they're bunching up and like getting into a corner or up against a wall and all the other ones are laying on them, they can be suffocated. Just like a snake does. Because all that weight accumulates on their body and they take the inhale and their, their chest goes in and the weight moves in. And they can only exhale so much. And they inhale again and then it, it just continues a continuous crushing. That's another thing to be aware of. You want your lights in the center so that they, when they're, when they're sleeping under that light, They're all under that light. Next is heat. This concept that we need to be roasting our birds at 100-something degrees for two weeks and then go down one degree per day, I believe is nonsensical. That is not how it works. Um, I want my brooder temperature somewhere around 90 degrees in the hottest part of it. And I'll start moving that light a, a little bit higher and away pretty quick. Um... Think about this. You want you, your, your birds have to be 100 degrees nonstop. Blah blah. Okay. Jeez, you're starting to cook them. And I do believe that some brooder losses come from too much warmth, especially if you know. Are they? Are they? Are you finding their water empty? Are you finding their water empty because you you know you don't have enough at, on hand at any time? So you could have dehydration deaths. So those are all the things that I would look at and consider. If you have any more information, if anything's changed since you made this call, let me know, and I'll do some follow-up on it for you. 
Anybody that's had high mortality with quail as babies and solved it, tell us your story either by phone or comment on the blog. Jack, this is Bob in Lano. This is not exactly a Jack, you're a jerk call. It's more of a Laurel and Hardy, Jack, another fine mess you've gotten me into call. Let me explain. So a couple, three years ago, you talked about small batch ciders, and I tried them, and my wife and I really enjoy them. I make uh, hard ciders about once a month, and we love it. Then, last summer, in episode 2208, you talked about in-the-bottle carbonation. I thought, hmm, I'll try that. Well, Jack, it's another fine mess you've gotten in, me into. Now my wife absolutely loves the carbonated version of my hard cider, and it's all I'm allowed to make. Jack, thanks again for getting me in a great mess. Bye. Not a bad problem to have. One of the things I wanted to say about this, though, is that cider is infinitely better carbonated. Uh, I like still meads, and in fact, most meads I prefer still to sparkling. Though some sparkling meads are pretty fancy. Blueberry mead just begs to be carbonated. It absolutely does. Uh, a raspberry ginger mead begs to be carbonated. Ciders really just that, it, it's a total different experience, that lift that you get from the CO2. And you can individually bottle and carbonate. Another thing you can do is we, we do ferment in the one-gallon apple juice bottles. Well, um, you usually end up with less than a gallon of apple juice, but you don't have to. You know my little trick with the the uh, the mead where we add water? What you do is that little bit of apple juice that you pour off so that initial fermentation doesn't clog your airlock or whatever. As your fermentation slows down, add it back to the fermenter. Just store it somewhere in a refrigerator or whatever and put it in a good clean container. Pitch it back in, it'll kick up again because that additional sugar, but you can end with pretty close to a full gallon. And another way to do it is after your big giant fermentation, you have that clunky yeast and you go to your secondary your rack. So just add your, your, your pitch back, your juice then, and you'd be close to a full gallon. The reason that's nice is now you take another one gallon apple juice bottle and you rack into it when your cider's finished. You add some sugar, do the math to figure out how much, uh, to that bottle and put the lid on it. Set it on the counter. It'll puff up. Throw it in the refrigerator. It'll kill off the additional fermentation. And if it clouded up at all, it'll clear right out. Now you got a gallon of carbonated cider right in that bottle. For daily drinker stuff, this is easy. Now, if you're going to save it and you know you want a bottle to give it away, so then go ahead and regularly bottle it. But you can just go back into one of those jugs and throw that in a refrigerator to, to, to stop that secondary fermentation once you're happy with the carbonation level. That way, even if you carbonate a little bit more than you wanted to as far as the sugar you added back, you're there. Now, here's another thing. I would be remiss if I did not say this. Take, uh, I would say, about a pint of apple juice out of your gallon. Make your cider. When it's finished, put that pint in when you bottle it into your big one-gallon bottle. You'll be back to about a gallon. And remember, you've added sugar to the ferment when you did it the first time. So there's not that much sugar in pure apple juice, and a pint's not that much. There'll be enough sugar in that pitch back 
let that go for a couple of days capped, and then throw it in the refrigerator. You'll get a, a nice little bit of residual sweetness and a little more apple coming through because it won't all ferment. So I don't like to back sweeten, but that's like a, a very mild version of a back sweeten, and that way you don't need an additional component. You could do it from pure apple juice too uh, without adding any sugar to your ferment, but if you do that, uh, you're going to get about a 3% alcohol cider. That's about 3% to 4% you're going to get from standard apple juice that you get from the store. There are some apples um, that are you know, old school apples for ciders uh, that have much higher sugar content in them. Because everybody thinks you always want for apple cider, you want these really tart, nasty apples. That's a balancing thing. Uh, good old school cider blending, you know, they're using about 10 to 20% of those kind of bitter producing apples and the rest you're trying to use actually a lot of even if they're not a really good tasting apple to eat they actually have a very high sugar content just a little add on there uh, next up we have a question on building a cabin hi Jack uh, this is Bill from North Carolina I recently purchased um, eight acres of wooded land and I'm looking to put a log cabin on our land the question I have for you is What's the best option? Should I uh, harvest my own logs off the property? I have no experience in uh, felling trees, so I'm not sure if I should even attempt to do this, or I think I should just hire someone to uh, cut down the trees for me and then get some help with building the actual log cabin. Uh, please give me your thoughts on what I should do about this. Thanks, Jack. Uh, my thoughts are you're probably going to need help no matter what you do. Uh, if you have no experience... Uh, with felling trees, you probably also have no experience with building a house. Uh, it would have helped to know, like, is this going to be a little bitty hunting cabin? Or is this going to be a place you're going to live? Uh, I'm going to assume it's going to be a place you're going to live. And then would be, do you want a cabin because you want a cabin? Or do you want a cabin because you have trees on your property and therefore it's the, the, the more economical solution? I would seriously look, if you just want a cabin because you want it to be a, you know, a log cabin, at purchasing a cabin kit and getting contractors to do the work that you're not capable of uh, or don't have time to do and doing it as a piece of true real estate that you can actually get a, you know, a bank mortgage loan on the construction costs of. And, and then you would also have something that you're, you would have a solid exit strategy when you want to sell it Uh, a, another uh, person would not have problem getting finance on it. That, that's actually what I would advise if you want uh, a log cabin. You, if, you, if you drop these trees, you can't just immediately yank bark off them and start putting them together as a cabin. Uh, they have to sit in season for uh, about a season. And the next thing would be, well, what kind of trees do you have on your property and what's the quality of that timber? If you have high-value timber, on your property, it may make a lot of sense to use it to defer cost of construction. If that were the case, though, I would strongly suggest you look into building what's called a timber frame home, which is sort of cabin-like, but we have things that are square, etc. Um, in general, that's easier to do. Um, the companies that do log cabins do a real good job of having their logs sorted so that they're sized appropriately for the structure, and they all kind of go together great, and it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Now, I've seen some old cabins that were just rough-hewn and slapped together with 
you know, self-made wooden pegs and stuff like that that are 200 years old in national parks, and they've had a little bit of upkeep, but they're still standing. Um, and, and that's impressive, given the technology they were built with and what have you. But I wouldn't want to live in them. You know, they're always remarkably small, low ceilings. And when you look at the work that goes into them, you can understand why. They did as much work as they had to to get something done. I've seen some old homesteads where they have these little bitty cabins, like a family of four lived in a closet, basically. But they did that while they built the true homestead. And they went with just throwing the logs together because it was fast. And then the, the old house, that's there, it might be 150 years old, was built more of a timber frame style because it actually is... It's and the other thing about log cabins. There's a lot of maintenance to them. Uh, when you, if you do a kit one, you're going to find that there's a there's like bolts and stuff, and that you're t t turned every season and things like that. Is the logs because even when they're well seasoned, they still continue to shrink a little bit and and move. So I actually love log cabins as a thing. I actually don't want one as an owner. I don't want the maintenance and the upkeep, etc. When they're 10 years old, and if everything went well, they're great. So I wouldn't mind buying one, but I wouldn't want to be the person. Now, I don't fault you if you do. I'm just saying, like, look into other options here. If you were going to do a timber frame home, I would look at getting a contractor to do a lot of the build for you. Uh, that has a good track record of actually building houses and not building half a house and leaving. Uh, and I would look at getting uh, uh, somebody with a mobile sawmill to mill the lumber on site for you. And that might not actually cost less than building a house with lumber from Home Depot. It probably won't. But the quality of the build and the quality of the timber will be four or five times better depending on the timber you have access available to you. You know, you can cut much stiffer sticks and things like that, uh, larger dimensional lumber, etc., if you're doing your own. You can do some amazing things with your walls, your floors, your cabinetry, etc., that you might, again, when you look at the whole thing, you might look at a house that costs $150,000 to build. And then you would say, well, I could have built the same house for $150,000. I could have just hired a contractor so I'd build it instead of cutting all this timber and stuff like that. But to build the house you'll have with the type of lumber you have in some of those situations, it might have cost you $400,000, $500,000. So you're able to build a house with a much higher value for a lot less money. That's one of the reasons to do this. Because it's not like all of this stuff is free, and it's not like 100% of what you cut is usable. If you want a, if you want a hunting cabin then honestly your easy solution is you know a couple thousand bucks in a tough shed spray foam insulate it and finish the interior um, if you just want a hunting cabin and you want to you know do the trees and stuff like that I, I'm okay with that I, you know that's that's a thing you'll learn from it and you'll decide if you ever really want to build a bigger home if that's the way you want to go and I don't want to pee on anybody's weedies or nothing but you probably decide you don't That's and understand. I always say this shows one man's opinion. I'm giving you my opinion. It, I'm not giving you a statement of fact. There are things that I talk about on the show, and I say you take this to the bank. This is 100% true. I'm telling you how, in this case though, how I feel about a situation. Um, 
So if you have any more information and you'd like me to clarify anything for you, follow up with me and I'll try to do that for you. Uh, like, you know, hey, my, my whole, I've got huge, you know, barely get your arm around them black locust trees here and it's the highest quality timber in the world or something like that, you know. Or, you know, I have a whole bunch of black walnut. Really? Because I might save some of that for some cabinet work and stuff like that, but if somebody had, you know, I got this huge grove of giant black walnut trees. Huh. Well, maybe you, those black walnut trees are going to buy you a house. Because that's another option. If you have a lot of timber and it's high value, you might sell out a portion of it and use the money to build the house in a more conventional way. There's lots of ways to function stack things, guys. Okay, this brings us to our last call of the day, and it's a call on the millennial generation and learning stuff. And it's not a negative one for you guys to get butt hurt. Here we go. Hey, Jack. I was just listening to your uh, 10 Basics of Preparedness episode and got a kick out of when you mentioned how some kids don't know how to use a can opener because I was that kid. Uh, my first <clears throat> girlfriend's dad put a can of peaches in front of me with a manual can opener, and I had only ever used electric. And he said, intelligence test, open this can of peaches. And uh, it might have taken me a few minutes, but I figured it out. And, you know, I was the kid that couldn't figure out ratchet straps for about an hour, but eventually I got that one too. And, you know, today I'm 25, I'm self-employed, I'm running a gardening business and uh, kind of a general handyman type as well. And just want to say that there's uh, there is hope for us young people after all. Uh, thanks for everything you do. Keep it up, and I'll keep listening. Thanks, Jack. Um, you know that that's kind of been my point the whole time when I've talked about you know, the ineptness of some portion thereof of the current generation. That like it's it's not a lack of ability; it's a lack of knowledge. It's ignorance, not stupidity. Um, it, it, it definitely is, and that's the that's the whole point. That like yeah, I know people didn't teach you this stuff. I'm sorry, but you can learn. So go do it. Um, and it's easy to mock people that don't know how to do something, but you know we none of us know how to do something that we've never done before, uh, and no one ever taught us how to do. And just some of us are lucky that we learned more stuff. But I, I believe our, our, our current generation of young people are the exact same physical beings that Gen X, like myself, are, or baby boomers, or tweeners, or what have you. Um, so... I think one of the messages I have for like the whole millennial group is don't get so butthurt when people talk about your generation and in a couple different ways too. So I just said that this is you know an ignorance versus a stupid issue, and there's an old saying you can cure ignorance but not stupid. Um, stupid is a lack of ability to to do something. You just you're never going to get it, and ignorance is just a lack of knowledge. Or, you know. And, and there's some truth to that. But stupid can be used in more than one way. And we had to just set a song this week from Alice Cooper, right? Hey, stupid. Um, <laughs> well, that kind of stupid is stupid behavior or stupid thoughts that might be driven by ignorance. But just when you look at it, there's no other word for it other than stupid. Like, let's try socialism. That's, that's an example of some stupidity. And so one of the things I've seen people get really mad about with like a, somebody posts a meme or something, and if that's you, or even if it's not you, if you just find it amusing, come to the site today and look at today's photo for the show. You might enjoy it. Um, but, you know, like, way to just diss an entire generation. Um, 
see, I think there's a lack of experience in not understanding the humor here. Because um, I'll say something like this. Uh, this is from the, from the generation that brought us eating Tide Pods or something. And they'll be like, didn't your generation? And they'll fill in the blank with something that my generation was known for that was really stupid. See, my response to that is, we're all stupid when we're young. When I was 20 years old one day, it was either 19 or 20 years old, I was in the back of a pickup truck doing 110 miles an hour. And that guy I talked about that I always worry that maybe he'll off himself someday, he was standing next to me, and another guy named Sean was standing next to him. And we were holding on to a roll bar in this little Ford truck, standing up, doing over 100 miles an hour, going across the Bridge of Americas, across the Panama Canal, passing a bottle of Jack Daniels back and forth to each other. That's stupid. And you couldn't pay me to do it today. You, I mean, you couldn't pay me to do that today. Because we all do stupid stuff when we're young. And that's why, when you're young, you shouldn't be telling the country what form of government we should have. Right? I mean, really. You really probably, as a group, shouldn't be making... Again, and we're back to a, you know, a, a men in black saying... A person is smart and people are stupid. As a group, young people are stupid. The majority of them individually have a lot of things that you can look at and go, that person's really smart. But in group think, and it's funny because I think that one of the things that, like, especially like, you, you, they're almost not millennial. Like, we're almost to the point where, like, whatever the next generation is they're calling them is almost coming into the teens and early 20s soon. But th that kind of tail end of the millennials and edge group of this, this Gen Z or whatever. It seems to act as if they're the first ones to figure out the United States should try socialism. <laughs> and the baby boomers are a bunch of jackasses that are just, you know, hardcore capitalists that just want to crush the earth and destroy babies or something. The baby boomers, when they were in their teens, guys, the guys that are in your teens and early 20s, now when they were in their teens and early 20s, they were the freaking flower children. They were the hippies. They were the people protesting the Vietnam War, smoking dope and putting flowers and guns. They wanted socialism more than you guys do right now. It's not like nobody... And they were stupid. They were stupid. <laughs> they just believed, well, it'll work this time. And, you know, they didn't have Muscandinavian socialism. They had, uh, we mean socialism, not communism. Okay. You know, but it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, there are some people in their 50s, 60s, 70s that think socialism is a good idea. But the percentage of them that think that versus the percentage that thought that when they were 20, that same demographic, if you slide it back in time, that's flipped over on the numbers. It's a high majority don't think that's a good idea anymore. And the reason is they worked their ass off, they gained a station in life. They earned what they have. And so now, like the idea of just cutting it all up and giving it away doesn't seem like such a good idea anymore. I mean, that's, that's a piece of the reality. But the other reality is life experience. So when you're a young person, because you could be listening to this, I don't know, 100 years from now, I could be long dead. Somebody has an archive of it somewhere, and your current generation, called the whatever generation, might be being told by the prior generation you're stupid. Well, on some level, you probably are, because we're all stupid when we're young. But 
we can all also be smart at the same time that we're busy being stupid. It's called learning. And you're never too young or too old to learn how to do something new. And the number one thing I think that makes people productive is learning how to do things versus learning how to argue an opinion about government. We don't really need a lot more people doing that. We don't. But we do need people to know how to fix shit, how to cook stuff, how to take care of other people. You know, that's what we actually need in the world. And I'm, I'm glad to see this guy with a business, a handyman business. How many times have I said that? If you can become a relatively decent handyman, you'll never run out of work. There's always some shit that needs doing. The person here doesn't have time, doesn't know how, or doesn't want to do. Uh, I, I, I really, like I said years ago, I had the idea for what have, might have become a Fiverr before Fiverr was a thing. Can't somebody else do it.com. Uh, I didn't have the idea of low cost stuff you could do online. It was just any, like, come get, come empty my garbage for me. And that's why I didn't do it. I didn't think it was logistically uh, possible. But if you think about what Fiverr is, Fiverr is, I don't want to. I'll give you five bucks to do this thing for me. And it works. And, and that's kind of that's the, 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 the marketing of a handyman is different than the marketing of like a guy that remodels bathtubs or bathrooms, right? And a handyman might eventually end up with clients doing a full bathroom remodel. That may happen in time as you develop more. But, you know, the day-to-day -day handyman stuff is a guy needs a small deck built. Guy needs, you know, a window replaced. A guy, you know, stuff like that. And it really is when you need something that you either can't, don't want, or don't know how to do, call me and I'll take care of it for you. And any kind of reasonably populated area, I mean, the guys that I found that were good, I always treated them really great because I didn't want them to go away. And whenever I'd call them up and say I need something done, it was never like I'll be right over. It's like, okay, I got a project tomorrow. I can be there Friday or Monday next week. Which one will work for you? Which means that's good. That means I have business. So um, it's definitely something I'd look into if I didn't have something to do. If I was sitting around right now broke and trying to figure out what to do with my life, I'd take the skills that I have. I'd maybe go do something like that. Mobile oil changes, drive for Uber, clean pools. Guys, you guys that are in your 20s... You can be making six figures within a few years if you will get out and kill it. And any one of those types of things. The guy that was cleaning my pool before the girl we have now was making 75k a year, and he worked real hard six months out of the year, and he barely worked the other six. Because the other six is like now. Like, that's what we have now. The girl comes every other week. During the high season, she comes every week to clean the pool. And I'm telling you, especially in the South, It's really hard to find someone that'll do above-ground pools. And there's nothing hard about them. There's nothing hard about them. And, you know, if a guy can knock down... And that guy was like 69 years old or something like that. 69 years old, he's knocking down 75K. Your young whippersnapper ass can get out there and beat ass and do better and work harder and make $100,000 cleaning freaking pools and not answering to anybody but your individual customers. And since each one of them makes you maybe a hundred bucks a month, if you have one that's a really big pain in the ass, you just fire them. Or you raise their price until they shut up as long as you're doing a good job. There's so much opportunity, guys. Go out there and kill it. You know, there's another saying. Youth is wasted on the young. Don't let that saying be about you. Don't let it saying about you. Because I'll tell you what, youth goes fast, too. 
Youth goes really fast. One of the reasons I said that I'll always be a soldier is because it just doesn't seem that long ago that I was 20 years old. But that's 26 years, guys. And some of it seems like forever ago, and some of it feels like it went just like that. Go get it. Go make it happen. When people criticize your generation, realize they're criticizing people, not a person. A person is smart, and people are stupid. With that, if you enjoyed today's show and you want to support us, one real easy way to do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, you'll see all the products I've reviewed on Amazon over the years, broken up by categories in alphabetical order for your convenience. You can also see the most recent reviews by clicking that link and scroll down through them. So if it's something I've talked about in the last week or two, you'll probably find it really easy that way. And you can just click on a link says you'll see the uh, deals of the day over at Amazon, see all the stuff that they have on sale over there. And as long as you start there, no matter what you buy, you do support the Survival Podcast and the show uh, and, and the work that we do. I'm sorry. Today I have a product called Gochujang. Gochujang is a fermented Korean hot pepper paste. And I love this stuff. I love cooking with it in traditional Korean dishes and in some innovative ways. I mentioned with getting people to eat stuff. My wife never wanted to eat venison. I tried it a long time ago, and it sucked. Well, then you ate venison that somebody ruined. And finally, one day, I had these meatballs I made for me and my buddy David, and she was really hungry, and I didn't have time to cook anything else, so she was going to eat leftovers, and she's looking at these meatballs, and went, those look really good, and they smell I'm like, well, try one. She ate one, and it was on. So maybe the way to get your picky eater off the fence with game or self-slaughtered meat is make some meatballs with this. Burger. You just take a tablespoon of this stuff and a tablespoon of black bean paste. Mix it in your burger meat and grill your burger. Changes the whole thing. Amazing. How about this? Everybody, sriracha mayo, sriracha mayo. It's been overdone, guys. Overdone. You know? It's in the '90s. It was the freaking sun-dried tomatoes. They were like you, you, you couldn't get anything without a sun-dried tomato stuck to it. That's what the. the how about this gochujang mayo? A tablespoon of this to about two to three tablespoons of mayo. Give it a mix. A little bit of salt. A little bit of pepper. Mmm. Oh yeah, it is on with that. You get those purple sweet potatoes that I talk about. These are the Japanese purple sweet potatoes. The thin purple skin and a yellow flesh. And they're nowhere near sweet like an orange sweet potato is. You cut those into fries. You deep fry them till they're done. You know, so whether you, you, when you touch them with a fork or whatever, you'd like, I could eat that. Take them out and drain them. Let them cool for about 10 minutes and throw them back in. And they get crisp and puffy. And you dip that in that gochujang mayo. And I know you're thinking, fries and mayo, trust me. Trust me, brothers and sisters, this is not your typical Hellman's mayonnaise, though you can use your Hellman's mayonnaise to make it. And there's some other great ideas I have for you with this stuff. You get a 1.1-pound tub. It lasts a long time. It's a fermented chili paste, so it has a really long shelf life. It's a great prepper product, great product for your kitchen. Check it out. Check out the article. And remember, as long as you can go to tspaz.com before you shop, Online, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do, no matter what you eventually buy. So it's painless. There's no reason not to do it if you like the show. That brings us to our song of the day at the end of the show today. Uh, and before I talk about that, I just want to remind you that next week I am doing the workshop 
While the workshop officially begins on Wednesday, um, I am taking Monday and Tuesday to be ready for everybody when they get here. And uh, so with that in mind, I am going to be doing rewinds all next week. If you have any particular subjects or episodes you would like me to put in the rewind uh, schedule, email me today because tomorrow is probably when I'm going to be doing all the work, getting them all up for the week next week. Uh, but just I will be gone for the week. And even Monday, uh, Monday's the 12th, which is the day after uh, Memorial Day, or I'm sorry, Veterans Day. Um, so I do have a Veterans Day special, and I will run the Veterans Day special on Monday. Uh, so I'll be gone for six days, and that will actually give me some free time on Monday to clean this place the hell up uh, after all this stuff is over. And, and take a nap, man. People say, what do you want to do when the, when the workshops are over? Take a nap. What do you want to do after you take a nap? Take another nap. <laughs> Two naps. Anyway, Song of the Day today is by, again, Alice Cooper. We picked Alice for this week because it was Halloween week. This is a very non-Halloween song, though, and it's a very non-Alice Cooper song. Uh, the song is called You and Me, and it's a love ballad. Yeah, from Alice Cooper. Uh, Alice actually termed, uh, termed this type of music housewife rock or housewife metal. And uh, I'd say maybe housewife, I wouldn't even call this metal. I mean, I think it would be fun to play this song for someone that ain't heard it before and get them to try to guess who it is. Because I don't think they'd figure out it was Alice Cooper. Oh, and yesterday, I forgot to mention something, the song yesterday. Um, that song had a very, if you remember, a very Pink Floyd-like vibe. It was a song that Alice wrote in the 60s, the first song he ever wrote by himself. But I do think it had some Pink Floyd influence, because Pink Floyd, the whole band, was living at Alice Cooper's place in Los Angeles when he wrote that song. So Alice has some range as an artist, uh, pretty cool range as an artist. Uh, this song shows that range. It's just a really sweet song. It's about the simple pleasures of living and growing old together as a couple. Uh, it has got some rock sound, a little bit of metal just because of his voice, I guess, even though it sounds so much different here. But in some ways, this song is almost Frank Sinatra-like. Now, it doesn't sound like Frank Sinatra, but some of the musical treatments are kind of edging toward that. And I could totally see with a slightly different arrangement this being a song that could be done by a person completely in that genre of the Frank Sinatra kind of uh, spooner type, you know, uh, you know, day and age music like that. Uh, you know, something that makes you think think back to the the '60s and or even the '50s and the Rat Pack days and stuff, uh, Dean Martin esque type thing. And you might, when you listen to this, you might go, no, nah, no. Nah. But if you really listen to it and really think about how it could be changed and used in that kind of space, kind of like what it is. Anyway, uh, the Alice Cooper you may have never heard before. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.